10 years ago tomorrow, Staff Sergeant Michael Moroni was rappelling out of a helicopter onto the rooftops of homes that had been flooded in the aftermath of Katrina. The Air Force had sent him there as an elite member of a special operations team, the pararescue jumpers. And from his vantage point there in the helicopter, when he would rappel onto the rooftops of these homes, they looked like stepping stones there, immersed in the flooded waters. And he rescued the aged, he rescued the infirmed, he rescued uh, people who uh, otherwise would have lost their lives. And as wonderful as that was, he was overwhelmed. There was just after a while, after so many rescues, uh, he just wondered, is this, you know, is this ever going to end? And how's this going to get fixed? And he began to feel helpless and hopeless because of his situation. And then he saw that one family on that one rooftop who'd been there for one week. A mom and a dad and five children and came down from that helicopter. And actually, he came down head first and then uprighted himself. And one at a time, he took the family members up into the helicopter. The mother was just absolutely scared to death. The little three-year-old girl was fearless. She got up into the helicopter, and then they went to the airport. And when they got to the airport, um, they got out, and that little three-year-old girl changed his life. She gave him a big grin and an even bigger bear hug. And Staff Sergeant Michael Moroni said, that just changed me. What he didn't know was that there was a photographer from the Air Force who was there to capture the moment. And what he didn't know was that photograph would soon go viral all across the country. And what he didn't know was that that photograph would even make its way to Afghanistan where his comrades were a year later, who then saw him and said, Boy, that's you, man. He didn't know, he didn't even know her name. He didn't even know that her name was Lachey Brown. He just knew that she changed his world. And Michael Maroney said, At that moment, I had fog. Cutting clarity as to why I was there. That in spite of the devastation and despite of the apparent hopelessness, I knew why I had joined the Air Force. I knew why I had been a part of the special operations uh, para-rescue jumping team. I knew that I was there to help people. To help people. And then he said this. He said, if I never, ever accomplish anything else ever in my life, that grin and that hug from that girl 
made it all worthwhile. And 10 years later, they're going to have a reunion in a few weeks. And that three-year-old girl is now 13. And he found her living about 60 miles away in Mississippi. Wouldn't it be great if at least once in our working life, each of us could be blessed with a fog-cutting moment of clarity where wherever we work, we would have the kind of experience that would leave us with the absolute non-negotiable clarity that this is why God has put me here. This is, this is why I'm sent to this place at this time with these people. I just Wouldn't it be great if at least one time we could have that? On Tuesday morning, we're going to go to work. Some of us are going to go to work right after services. And we're going to go to work, and it's not just going to be about work. Your colleagues, your employees, your employers, oh, they're going to come to work all right, but you know what? They're going to bring with them their issues. Uh, their issues about their marriage, their issues about their family, their issues about the future, their issues about retirement, and a dozen other issues that they cannot leave on their driveway when they leave home to come to work. They're going to bring that with them. And you're going to be there. And their issues are your opportunity. Your opportunity to be the presence and the love and the light and the grace and the mercy of God to them where they are. That's going to be your privilege, your ministry. So you see, your job is not just a job. It's a vocation, vocare, Latin, calling. It's a calling. It's not, and that, that makes it more than just a calling. It makes it a mission. It makes it a ministry. Your work's not just work. Job's just not job. It's a vocation. It's a calling. It's mission. It's ministry. All of us. Biblical Christianity teaches the priesthood of all believers. So you are a priest at your place of work. A priest. The word priest means bridge. You're the bridge between a hurting person and a healing God. God's placed you there for that purpose. Job's not just a job. It's ministry. Now, the minute I say that, there's a temptation to push back. You know, to say, well, of course you believe that, pastor. You're a pastor, and you work in a church. I get that. But, pastor, you don't know my boss. If you only knew my boss, if I only had a better boss, if I only had a boss that I could follow, if I only had a boss that I could respect, if I only had a better boss, I, I get that. I hear that all the time around here. <laughs> Not with the church staff. <laughs> Would I hear it? <laughs> you know what? Actually, I have heard it. I've been here long enough that uh, there have been seasons when uh, 
you know, I, I've been told the last 10% of truth. And, and I thank God that we have an elder leadership team who knows how to lovingly and firmly tell the lead minister when he's not at his best, okay? And I thank God that we have an elder leadership team that loves their senior minister enough to tell him when he is at his best. So, and I've heard both, okay? So, if we only had a better boss. And you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. If you had a better boss, yes, you would be able to see your work as not just work, but as ministry, and you'd find satisfaction in it. Well, listen, that leads us to our passage of Scripture today, because our Scripture today specifically urges God's people to find a better boss where they work. Would you be interested in that? (laughs) Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and I want us to read what Paul has to say to the Christians in the first century city of Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. You'll find Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 in your church Bibles on page 979. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, there's a copy in front of, in front of you on the pouch. Please take it, receive it as a gift from Windsor Road. Paul talks to Christians and urges them to find a better boss. And let's see who that boss is in verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Now these verses were written 2,000 years ago uh, to the first century Roman city of Ephesus. Sarah and I got to visit Ephesus about six years ago when we went to Turkey. And you can walk on the streets of first century Ephesus just where the Apostle Paul walked. It's amazing. They call it an outdoor museum. It's fascinating. You can see the amphitheater uh, where the mob gathered in the book of Acts and they wanted to rip Paul limb by limb. You can Go to that amphitheater today. It's amazing. And that first century city of Ephesus and what is now the modern-day country of Turkey situated itself in the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was run in the institution of slavery. 
Now, there are similarities and there are dissimilarities between Roman slavery and American slavery. And we're going to be lifting principles that Paul gave based on his instructions to slaves and slave owners in first century Rome. But before we find these principles to apply them to our context, I want us to really connect with Paul's context. And that context will teach us some similarities between Roman slavery and American slavery and some dissimilarities between Roman slavery and American slavery. And it's just, it's just good to know as we learn from these verses. Let's talk about the dissimilarities first. Uh, one of the ways in which Roman slavery and American slavery was dissimilar was that in Roman slavery, it was not race-based. If you walked down a major city of Rome or the city of Rome, uh, slaves were of all ethnicities. In fact, slaves were of all occupations. Uh, and so there would be slaves who would be engineers or architects or professors, or uh, day laborers, or farmers, or teachers, um, of all occupations. Artists, musicians, uh, they could be slaves. You couldn't tell the difference as you're walking down the streets because uh, uh, they came from all backgrounds and occupied all uh, uh, jobs. One other way that you would become a slave, or the differences, showed up in how you became a slave in the Roman Empire. For instance, if your mother was a slave and she gave birth to you, well, that would make you a slave. Um, you would also be a slave if you were kidnapped or if you were captured as a prisoner of war. Think uh, Maximus in the movie Gladiator. He was captured and kidnapped and enslaved in that way. And then yet another way that a person might become a slave would be that they would sell themselves into slavery. So you, even Roman citizens, they didn't have bankruptcy court back then. So if you were into debt up to your eyeballs, you might sell yourself into slavery for a specific length of time. And... Uh, Andrew Lincoln, in his commentary on Ephesus, mentions that by the first century, the average tenure of a slave in the Roman Empire was between 10 to 20 years, which is way different than American slavery. So those were some ways in which slavery differed. But here's how it was similar. It was brutal. And it was evil. Um, slave owners could dominate their slaves in, in any way that they wanted. Physically, verbally, sexually. Um, it was just a ruthless system. And sometimes slave owners just randomly would beat their slaves and inflict all sorts of violence upon their slaves just to communicate who was the slave owner and who was the slave. All right? So it's in this context that the Apostle Paul writes these verses to house churches peppered across um, uh, the city of Ephesus. 
And these little house churches would have maybe 30 to 50 in a house church. And so there would be Christian slaves and Christian slave owners. And some of the Christian slaves, why their owner might be a Christian, but not. Or the slave owners might have Christian slaves and others not. Uh, There would be a diversity of ethnicities. There would be a diversity of age groups. Uh, All life situations in the first century church, in these homes, these house churches, the dynamics. I mean, people are all looking at one another, you see. That's what's going on. And so in that context, the Apostle Paul, through these verses, says, look, I want you to find satisfaction in your work, whatever your station is at work. And so what I want us to see is that, so if it's true that the Apostle Paul could tell a first century slave, you can find satisfaction in your work, how much truer is it? For 21st century employees to be able to find satisfaction wherever their workstation is. And if it's true that first century slave owners were told to lead not in fear and through pride, then how much truer is it for 21st century employers to lead not in fear and through pride? The key is, who's your boss? The key is how you think and what you believe. The key is psychological and also spiritual. And so in these verses, the Apostle Paul says, there is a better boss. And that leads us to question number one. Who? Who is the boss that we are to make sure that we understand that we work for? That's the first question we're going to answer this morning. And the second question is, and so what does that mean for my job? What's that mean for the way I'm to do my work? All right? Who's in charge? And what's that mean for me? Those are the two questions we're going to answer today. Now, would anybody dare to take a stab at the first question? Who's in charge? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, yes, Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every question at Windsor Road Christian Church. Where's the coffee? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, that's right. Christ is the CEO and creator of every job. It's not just a pat churchy answer it is a reality it's a real and you know what he who rises from the dead gets to define reality and so jesus is the ceo of every job that's what paul's telling us here in these verses in fact he tells us that all the way back in ephesians chapter 1 Verses 19 and 20 and 21, 
when he tells of God the Father working in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. All things. That means your job is under the feet of the emperor of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reality. What we learn in these verses is that work is in the mind and the heart of our creator God. For by him all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created by him and for him. Your job was created by him and for him. Work comes from the heart of God. We, this is not just in Ephesians 1. This goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, where we read of our creator God as a worker. And he loves his work. And he's pleased with his work. And he's wise enough to know when to cease from work. And when he placed the man and the woman in the temple garden, Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden as his image bearers, as stewards of his creation to care for the garden. So you see, work is a part of paradise. Somewhere, somebody got the idea that at work? Why do we work? Well, because of sin. No, no. Work is pre-fall. Work was commissioned to Adam and Eve uh, before their sin. Work is in the mind and the heart of God. We need to work's a part of paradise, and so we need to work. You need to eat, you need to drink, you need to rest, you need to enjoy beauty, you need leisure, and you need to work. You need to, we don't. We don't, we, don't, uh, um, we don't work to live. We live to work. It's a part of the mind and the heart of God. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 17, My Father, even now, is at work, and I am too. Now, you see, this, this has implications for our jobs because, as I said earlier, they're not just jobs. It's a vocation. It's a calling. And, and if you're a priest, and you are if you're in Christ, that means that your place of work is a holy place. It means that God is interested in your place of work. It's a spiritual place. Your place of work. A spiritual place. The classroom. The office. The plant. The hospital room. It's a spiritual place. God's interested in it. And here's what else it means. Very important. It means that um, biblically, there's no such thing as a clergy laity two-tiered system. Uh, somewhere, someone got the wacky idea that, you know, Pastors are in the spiritual business, and y'all are just in the secular business. So, there. 
Well, that's not biblical. There's nowhere in the Bible that talks about that. Um, Tim Downs, in his book, Finding Common Ground, has a great quote. Biblically, the most secular profession is, in a sense, something holy. It's not innocent something holy. It is holy. Your work is holy work because God is the author of work. And then he says this. This is beautiful. God is as much present behind the counter at Taco Bell as he is in the pastor's study. That's gospel truth, people. My calling is to make an impact on my world by fleshing out my Christianity in this profession at this department with these co-workers. That's good news. You are to be good news at your place of work. And so when you go back, you have the opportunity to reflect the light and the love and the image of God by the quality of your work the integrity of your work, the ethics of your work, your work. So, the New York Times once wrote an article polling American scientists about their belief in God. And the majority said, yes, yes, we do believe in God. And the story got prominent play in the New York Times. And then the paper read this letter to the editor. I love it what this person said. Well, scientists believe in God. La-di-da. I say what affects society more is the faith of car mechanics. You see, I have a Ford station wagon. And when I take my car to the shop and say, Lou, look at that transmission, chances are his faith and its teachings are going to keep Lou from messing with my engine. Sure, it's nice when mathematicians find God in their calculus, but I'll take a mechanic who sees God in my carburetor. Huh? That'll preach. And listen, if you have a mechanic that sees God in the carburetor, you're going to see God in the mechanic. Jesus is CEO of every job. That's who's in charge. Okay. So what's that mean for you and me? Well, if Jesus is CEO of every job, what that means for you and me is all of us report to him. That's what that means. This is good news because organizations... Organizations have organization charts. And those organization charts have layers. And whether it's hospital or whether it's a corporation, there's the board, there's the CEO, there may be the president, and vice presidents, layers, layers, layers. Even in church work, huh? you're going to have coordinators and you're going to have an adult minister and then you're going to have the children's minister and the student minister and the associate minister and then you're going to have the prime minister. Okay? Somebody's got to be the prime minister. Well, you can see where I'm going with this, right? 
Because although work is in the mind and heart of God, our sin has caused us to break the beauty of work and mar the beauty of work. And so these org charts, you know, they can mess with us, make us feel like we're more important than we really are. These org charts can make us addicted to certain levels because we feel like that if I just achieve this level, then I'll just be an important person. And so our ego swells and our mercy shrivels. And org charts can become idolatrous because we want to attain a certain level and we give and give and give and give to try to get this degree or this level or this title or this salary and and it's an idol that takes and takes and takes but never gives. Hmm. Well, Jesus has a different idea about org charts. He has an org chart too, all right? You want to see Jesus' org chart? There it is. It's real flat, okay? There's Jesus and then there's you, 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 you. That's it. Because Christ is CEO all of us report to him. And, you know, you got the rhetoric of this passage as I was reading to you because that's what Paul was trying to tell people. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Why would he say earthly masters? Well, because he's trying to tell slaves that, that earthly master, that's just not all there is. There's a heavenly master. There's one over that master doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the goodwill as to the Lord. And he will receive back from the Lord. Masters do the same thing and stop your threatening. Know that, knowing that he who is both their master and yours. Masters, you have a master. That's what Paul's trying to teach here in these verses. So specifically, that means that if you are an employee, you are to serve with full awareness that you're serving Christ. Your identity is not to be in your degree or your office or an org chart. Your identity is to be grounded in the one to whom you report the Lord Jesus Christ. In a parallel passage, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, you are serving the Lord Christ but I'm up floors. Great. You are serving the Lord Christ. But I'm Olant. Brilliant. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's his lawn. It's his yard. It's his landscaping. But I'm just a teacher. Just a teacher? What do you mean just a teacher? You are serving the Lord Christ by imparting his knowledge because all truth is God's truth. Whether seminary or university, all truth is God's truth. But I work retail. Fantastic. You are serving the Lord Christ by helping those customers like the way they look. You are serving the Lord Christ. Serving the Lord Christ will keep you from both overworking and underworking. It will keep you from overworking and, and becoming a performance-based workaholic because you're serving the Lord Christ and he loves you and he is a merciful God. And serving the Lord Christ will keep you from becoming a lazy, sloth-driven sluggard. And apparently that was a problem here in these verses because Paul uses the phrase, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, 
And that doesn't need to be explained, does it? People who only work when they're watched. People who are only busy when the boss is around. Listen, you cannot effectively love people. You can't share the love of Christ if the only time you work is when others watch. There must be a level of excellence and diligence that is as unto the Lord. And you really can't effectively share your faith if you're not pulling your load at work. Her name was Becky. She was a nurse. And there were only two patients in the cardiac care unit that night, and both of them were happily on the mend. When Becky settled into the stare at that monotonous heart monitor, the other nurse on duty interrupted and said, Becky, can I talk to you about something? Sure, Becky said, what is it? The other nurse said, you know, Becky, I've noticed that you bring your Bible to work every day, and I know you're a Christian. And Becky, just in her heart, smiled and said, oh, Lord, I finally get a chance to witness to her. And then the other nurse said, Becky, as a nurse, you are dispensable. You have a lot of potential, but the discrepancy between what you could be and what you are is disappointing. Let me give you some advice, whether you want to hear it or not. If I were you, I'd become indispensable. Maybe then somebody will listen to your religion. You're serving the Lord Christ. Somebody is always watching you work. Well, that's Paul's words to the employees. Now let's listen to what he has to say to the employers which is this. If you're an employer, you too have an employer. If you're an employer, you too have a master. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them. And that little phrase was totally un-Roman. What? Masters do the same? What? Paul says, hey, if you're in Christ, it's a whole new system. Masters, do the same to them and stop you're threatening. Now, why would he say that? Why threatening? Well, it's as I said before. Ingrained into the culture of first century Rome was Roman masters who would get their slaves to obey just by randomly beating them and threatening them with death. And this happened just to keep them off guard and just to remind them that they were slaves. Paul says to those Christian slave owners, no threatening. This has to stop. And you see what Paul's doing here, don't you? In one verse, with just a few words, Paul dismantles the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. Because Paul says, look, even though the culture says that they're legally yours, I want you to treat your slaves like free people. Paul said, you may be their boss, but you're not God. And you are an earthly employer. And there is one who is Lord of heaven and earth over you. You remember that with your power. Question. If you're an employer or you're a supervisor, or you have employees who report to you, 
What is the purpose of your power and authority as a supervisor? What's the purpose of your power and authority as a supervisor? If your response is, well, to get them to do what I want them to do, that is insufficient. It's insufficient. The purpose of power is not to lord it over other people. The purpose of power is to love and to serve so that others will flourish and thrive and prosper. That's the purpose of power. Because power is meant to bear the image of God. Power is meant to help others prosper. Power is meant to be the servant of love. And yes, even in those difficult times when an employer has to help an employee find a new future, it is done in a way with respect and dignity and grace and that last 10% of truth but in a way that will lead that person to eventually thrive where they are, even if they can't thrive under your leadership. You see, in the presence of the Lord, whose organizational chart is so flat, there's no difference between a CEO and a custodian. In the presence of the Lord, there's no difference between the President of the United States and a private first class. In the presence of the Lord, there's no difference between master and slave. Uh, I heard a great example of this uh, just a few weeks ago. Our staff went to a leadership uh, conference, and I heard a speaker whose name was Horst Schultz. And for years, he managed the Ritz-Carlton chain and totally transformed the culture of the employees there. He elevated the staff of hotel workers and housekeepers showing up to these new employee orientations and saying something like this, do you know who I am? I'm the CEO. That makes me important. But you're important too. In fact, you're more important. If I don't show up to work as CEO, nobody notices. But if you, the hotel worker and housekeeper, if you don't make the bed right, if the room's not right, it's a disaster. And he created what Ritz-Carlton calls a vision of ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Look, I understand the weight of my role here at Windsor Road as uh, your minister. I get that. And I could not be with you last Sunday. And while I was gone, things went swimmingly. Things were wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. But if the bathrooms aren't clean, and they are here, and if the floors aren't swept, and they are here, and if our hosts don't greet our guests and our parking lot attendants don't smile when the guests come, and they do here, and if our nursery volunteers don't show, and if children's and student ministries aren't staffed, it's a disaster. So the question is, you know, am I using my leadership 
and my power and authority, which is on loan from Christ temporarily. It's a delegated authority. I don't have it inherently. It's delegated. Am I using that so that others can prosper? Let me challenge you. If you're a leader and others are following you, following you, the leader, should hold the promise of life change. So how are your followers changed as a result of following you? Because power is meant for image bearing and image bearing is meant for flourishing. And when we flourish, the kingdom of God expands. You see, the kingdom of God is not merely to expand by planting new churches. That's not just how the kingdom of God expands. The kingdom of God expands as the presence and the rule and the love and the will of God is done not just in a local church house, but at your office house and where you work and how you work. And so you bring with you the potential for life change so that the kingdom, so that's the purpose of business. The purpose of business is to love and serve others so that the kingdom of God can expand. And I'll tell you this much, if we take the 1,113 people who were here last week and we send them out, what if all 1,113 people realized that they were priests and God had placed them strategically in a flock so that they would serve as a bridge so that the hurting of people might come to, to face the healing God well, I'll tell you what, it would be a beautiful, chaotic Sunday service as the stories would be told over and over and over again. Look what God's doing. Look what God's doing. And that's how we show love. And that's what, that is what a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ looks like. You see, when Jesus is CEO, there is no such thing as a menial job just a menial attitude. And Jesus never asks you to do something that he has not done. Because Christianity, Christianity is high, low, high. The God who was on high, he who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He who was the highest of all masters then descended into greatness by being the lowest of all of the servants. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. And therefore, God raised him to the highest place. And what God has promised to do for you, he's already done for his son. So he's not going to defraud you. The best is, in fact, yet to come. Because Jesus Christ is the CEO. And we all report to him. So, can you hear what Paul's saying? All of us, let us do all of our work with all of our heart. As if all of us worked for Christ. On Tuesday, or maybe in just a few minutes, you are going to go to work. And your work is your sermon. And... There's going to be people in the congregation to hear your sermon, your work. Colleagues, employer, employees. But there's going to be one person who's going to be the most important person in your congregation. And that's the CEO, 
Jesus. So when you step to your pulpit, what are you going to say? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of representing you in the place where you have put us. God, open our eyes that we can see you where you've put us and fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can share your love, your mercy, your joy, your goodness so that the work that you've called us to do will get done, but the way in which it's done by us and our leadership or our servanthood or our servant leadership, Lord, will be done in a way that others clearly see that we belong to another kingdom. God, all glory to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.